Welcome to Local Share Green Action Podcast. This show is produced by Go Green Locally, a 501c3 nonprofit providing tools and resources for people that are looking for ways to take even more successful local action that makes a difference for our people and our planet. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by my co-host, Tanner Petrilla, speaking with a permaculture designer extraordinaire that has worked on some amazing permaculture projects in multiple countries and with one of his students, an up-and-coming designer. We are speaking with Sam Parker-Davies and Luca Kershackle. Sam Parker-Davies has worked in every climate worldwide with a variety of people, including billionaires, refugees, and government officials working in deserts and forests. As an educator, designer, aid worker, project manager, and farmer, he is on the front line of planetary regeneration, creating some of the best of permaculture designs for large farm projects, residential properties, refugee camps, and eco-villages. Sam has been working closely with Jeff Lawton, a well-known and respected permaculture designer for over five years. Sam has a primary residence at Zaytuna Farm, which is a permaculture Research Institute of Australia, and currently lives at the Greening Desert site in Jordan. He has practiced permaculture as his sole profession for almost a decade, while coming from a family of farmers, gardeners, and eco-village builders. Luca Kruschakel has been gaining worldwide experience learning permaculture in Australia, Portugal, Austria, and Greece. Luca, at only 20 years of age, Italian-born and bred, is passionate about bringing this revolutionary design science to Italy. Welcome to the show, Sam and Luca. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having us. Really, I'm looking forward to the interview. Yeah. Yeah. We are both so excited to speak with you and find out more about your path of green action that led you to becoming permaculture designers working on regenerative projects around the world. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. So what planted the seeds for you to start taking some kind of green action initially? Understanding that you, Sam, came from a family of gardeners, farmers, and eco-village builders. Has this Mm -hmm. always felt like a natural extension of who you are? Did you have to create your own path and maybe reasons that you embrace this? Yeah, I grew up in a forest. But what's interesting about growing up in a so it's a world heritage, amazing forest, like it's a, a gorgeous situation, but it's, it means that you can't farm in that forest. So I'd visit my family who are farmers, some of them ecological, some of them not. And I, I grew up in a, a region where it was almost mandatory to be quite eco- ecologically minded to be um, uh, of that sort of bent, but not necessarily practical, which I think is an extreme disadvantage to the permaculture or to to the ecological movement that permaculture has, the ecological movement doesn't. So I grew up with a lot of people who they wanted this for the environment and they wanted that for the environment, but the practicalities of achieving that were unknown. They weren't discussed or understood. And who was going to do that was the mysterious them. It was the mysterious the other people who were going to achieve all these desires and wishes that we had for the environment. And so I grew up in this kind of this strange feeling of, um, it was frustration, 
I went to school for 13 years and felt immensely frustrated by this concept. Felt very upset that it was that the the situation was we were going into this turmoil. Like there's a mandatory section in Australian education where you have to learn about all the ecological problems of the world, and that's a depressing few weeks in a child's life. So for me, I'd already, I'd discovered the internet and I'd researched ecological problems myself because that was something that was available to me to study. And I went down deep, dark rabbit holes on the internet, things that a 12 year old shouldn't be reading, shouldn't be discovering. And then I had that um, also then compounded by that uh, subject in, in school. They did all that. They had all their... Yeah, how horrific all the problems were and how horrible the world is and what are we going to do and all that sort of thing. And then on the last lesson, we had five minutes of solutions that people were putting in the world. And I saw this crazy man in Jordan greening the desert. It blew my mind. It was like the one thing that I like really I held on to. I really kind of grabbed and ran with. And so as I grew up, I realised that the weird thing that my grandmother did called permaculture was actually pretty cool and that my, the thing that my grandfather was doing like living off grid on a farm up north from me not in the forest that I lived on but on farmland it's actually quite amazing it was actually doing quite an amazing thing and I, I guess I started to piece this together as I, I came of age and um, I did my first permaculture course pretty much within a year of me finishing school and it was just all I did after I left school with like a few other things sprinkled in to begin with I ran for the council I ran for my local council thinking that was how I was going to make a change so I was going to I was going to sit in an office and push a pen around and that was going to change the world and I thought maybe I'd start like making events and doing all these sorts of things and then as soon as I got to Jeff Lawton's farm which was 40 minutes away from my grandfather's farm. It's a region where lots of people do this sort of stuff. Uh, I, don't, I imagine there's parts of California that are quite equivalent to this sort of scenario in Australia. There's lots of people living off-grid, with, living on car batteries and homemade solar panels. I don't know. if <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure. So that those ideals are environmental, but often, again, it's in a way that's... Uh, impractical which is such a shame that people taking practical action they're taking the decision to take responsibility for their lives to not demand it to be something that someone else does for them to be something that they do that they're going to grow their food they're going to catch their water they're they're going to regenerate land they're going to be the solution that they they wish for Um, but then it's often still so caught up in in anger at other people anger at authority anger in ideals that the extent to which these people could have an effect on the world was limited and I kept looking outside of the farm that I was on I was kept looking outside of Jeff Lawton's farm thinking that the green the grass would be greener on the other side there'd be somewhere else that I could go that would teach me something better or something like this and I looked and I looked and I did not find anything I did not find anything better than permaculture I did not find anything more complete, more comprehensive, more helpful 
to the world. If I ever do, and I say this in courses, if I ever do, I will jump ship. I'm not loyal in that way. If, if I find something that will help the world better, I will jump ship, but I have not found anything to this day. And I've looked really hard. So for me, I, that's been my, my journey to it. Uh, I, I don't think um, I think so. I, I'm very grateful that I was able to do that at such a young age. That's, that's amazing. Luca, I'd like to ask you the same question. I know you're newer to permaculture, but... My story is definitely a bit shorter, but I guess it has roots in me growing up with close to my grandparents from my dad, from my mom. And they taught me the, some basic skills of life, with, which were cooking with my grandma and with my my granddad was more of engineering and building, woodworking, more workshop, crafty things. And from there on, I got the, the yeah, from these passions, let's say, that were built in me or were, while I was growing up, they were basically my everyday life, helping my grandma in the kitchen, in the garden, picking up veggies to cook with, cooking all day, or my grandpa fixing stuff and building things. Those two things were then, during my teen years, my main focus, cooking and growing some veggies for myself, for my yeah, cooking recipes. Mm. And the other part was building stuff. So just going out, buying wood, finding uh, from the dump things to bring home and put together and just build stuff. Then slowly, I was more and more looking in the internet for garden ideas and more in the agricultural let's say path and that's when i stepped into permaculture or found permaculture for the first time and it wasn't that immediate the jump or the idea of oh yeah permaculture is what i want to do but after a few years of knowing that permaculture existed and a bit the basics I decided, I'd say, yeah, I have to take a step in my life, go and take a PDC, really understand what this permaculture is. And from there on, when I went to Australia, I'd say to Una to take my PDC, it was, I knew my path, how I was going to go and how my future were, was turning out, let's say. And from that point, I'm thinking and struggling to how to organize and my progress and my career into this permaculture not only for myself, because doing stuff for yourself, building a, a garden, living off the land, it's easy, I think, but I wanted to really help others do this. I'm helpful with everybody it's in me, and I have this thing, I'm, it's hard for me to say no sometimes to, to people. I just really want the best for everybody. And so, yeah, I'm started my journey and going in, in this journey of permaculture also with Sam, I'm so grateful for him to help me out and let's say guide me a bit in the initial phases because it's permaculture is so vast and there's so many things that you can really get lost in the path. Mm -hmm. So having a guide, I think is really helped me a lot. Yeah. Yeah. As another young man, I see the opportunity that you have Lika, of, of one of your, one of your great teachers coming to, to be with you and to work with you and your systems, I just see that as, as quite, quite a sweet gift. And I could only dream, dream of having that, 
not a lot of people are as free and versatile as you say, and you're able to move about the world pretty, pretty free. And that's really cool because you can offer what you are to, to Luca in Italy mm. when just it's out of your free time. What regenerative projects in the last decade have been the most exciting to you, Sam? And can you tell us about it? Yeah, there's been some really big ones that that have landed on Jeff's desk. Living with Jeff is mind-blowing all the time, particularly in the first year when you think, is anything going to happen? What's happening in the world? And then you're like, whoa, that government's doing what? (laughs) Those people are doing what? Because he just gets all these crazy things landing on his table all the time. And so for me, for my time with Jeff, I was, I spent a year just working really hard on his farm. My, my desire from the farm was to learn discipline. I wanted to work as hard as I could, learn how to work very hard and become a farmer. And so I, I just worked hard and did not expect to learn the things that I learned and see the things that I saw when I was working there, I saw, I'm not entirely sure how much I'm supposed to share of this, but I, I will. And I hope that there's all good repercussions. <laughs> um, so Jeff got gigs with the government of Saudi Arabia, where he designed areas of land the size of Belgium. There's been invitations from the wealthiest people in Georgia, the wealthiest people in Qatar, from some of the biggest players in the world, like Fortune 500 people really wanting to regenerate land, large areas of land. And they're, they're tremendously exciting. Like what one was the, they wanted to have ready, but COVID really screwed this up. They wanted to have the, a per, the first permaculture city park in the world in Doha before the Olympics. Mm-hmm. Was it the Olympics that they had? Mm-hmm. What did they have in Qatar? No, yeah. The, uh, was the football World Cup. Oh, the World Cup. I want to have it ready before the so, World Cup. Yeah. But COVID made that not happen, unfortunately. But yeah, it was really impressive design, very exciting. I had underground education facilities. So you could be in a park and then go through a, a like a little hole in the ground and end up in like a room playing permaculture videos 24-7. And there was a full food forest all on um, evaporation time, irrigation, so it used the minimal water possible full food gardens, overstory date palms, like all that sort of stuff. And then the workers' facilities were underground as well, so all the tools, all those sorts of things. It's like space saving, but also um, keeping the everything very cool, keep making it an extremely nice environment to be in without air conditioning, which for the Gulf region, for Qatar, is like a revolution, you know, <laughs> mind-blowing. You can live without, you can live without, uh, without air conditioning. Uh, Some of the projects that I've been involved in that have changed me the most have been just aid work has really flipped my mind upside down and working for wealthy people has flipped my mind upside down. Just, I think that it can be very frustrating, very aggravating going between socioeconomic cultures, people in situations of real poverty, of real extreme suffering, people with a lot of money and yet you like bouncing between these two realities, like trying to make this, these worldviews meet in your head because the pe- people have strong worldviews, whether they realise it or not. They've grown up and they've cultured themselves in a certain way. And if, even if someone thinks themselves quite open-minded and quite neutral, 
it's something that we've only been exposed to what we've been exposed. And this is just the reality that we have. And it isn't until you, I think, you see something or you're immersed in something that, that you have certain revelations about the way the world actually works and um, how people think. And you come with your own worldviews as well into those scenarios. Mm-hmm. So for me, my first refugee camp that I worked in was in Greece and it was with a lot of Syrians. And they were, they were really freshly traumatised when I was working with them. So they, they didn't overshare, but I, but I saw very, very people who had freshly had their lives like just destroyed, their homes. Like, like first world people from a first world country living, living very uncomfortable lives, all of a sudden living in tents, like five-person tents with 10 people, 15 people with, with not enough room to like... Iraq, and they're much more sharing because they're not freshly traumatised. They're much more willing to tell you stories because it's just become normal. Like there are people who have grown up in Iraq who'd be 20 years old, um, and that's the reality that they know. It's like so, if they're going to share you life events, those are their biggest life events. Is when they lost their parents or when their village got raided or stuff like that, and it's. Oh, it's really hard. It's really hard things to listen to. But it, it gives you, I think, really important perspective, really, really important perspective that the privileges that we have, sometimes they're not privileges. We've, some of the comforts that we've been given in life have limited us from understanding the truth about the world. And I think that the greatest privilege is to know the truth. And for a lot of us, going along feeling like I think the most important thing is comfort or the most important thing is my security or safety or even a roof above my head or these things. There are people who I've met who I think really they do understand the more important things in life and that's, that, that's I think, trust. It's belief, it's community, it's connection and it's faith. I've just I've met people who have lived in such difficult situations who have such a great profound love for the world and for strangers that I think can only be kept by some amount of faith but I'm sorry that was a bit of a tangent (laughs) but for me that's been a transformational project it's been working on working in places we built a reed bed like a big like cleaning system. I don't know if I if you saw this on my Instagram stories, but we built this like really long reed bed for cleaning sewage waste. So I was working in a village where they dropped quite a lot of bombs. I've never seen so many blown up buildings in my life, and they all their water from all over the village, like the sewage, the poo, the weed, the shower, the soap. Every household chemical you can imagine all collects into this big, this big lake. Like it's, it's a small lake, the small green lake that smells like all the worst things. Like it smells horrific, and all around it are houses with lake views. Like it's the, the and it was the most biodiverse thing with the most life in it. I saw the whole time I was in Iraq, and I had dragonflies, it had frogs, even have dogs swimming in it. You can imagine the dogs come out. Kids pat the dogs, they touch their mouths. And if if they're a kid or a sick adult, they probably die of cholera. They die of 
some sort of sad disease. And it's such a simple thing to fix, such an easy thing to fix. The clean water, that's what plants do. That's plants take nutrient out of water. That's why we fertilize plants. We put nutrient, like manure, like urine. We put all sorts of weird chemicals in water. We fertilize our plants. That's the job of plants. That's exactly what plants do. They make water clean, really. And it's not a big investment. It's not a difficult thing to clean water at all. But this is uh, this is the situation. And I don't know how many billions of dollars have been spent on aid in Iraq, but it seems that has not been a priority. So we build a big reed bed, big bed that cleans water with plants out of building rubble. That, that was, one, I think, that was very fun. I think we made a big, we made a gate for the water out of a used missile. We had this big missile that we cut, we cut in half, and we put this gate inside the missile. We stuck that on, on the entry for the water, and then we, like, with all the building rubble, we made these rock walls for the water to pass through and around, and we filled it with gravel, like little bits of blown-up buildings, and then we planted plants into it. It was, <laughs> it was an immensely fun project. And the locals, it was, uh, I think it was mixed. It's like one of those things where I think for local people, they're so desperate for money, they'll take any job they can get and they just want to use aid. Any aid worker that comes along is like a cash cow to use. They just want to use you. And, and most aid work is not very helpful to local people. So I can understand the mentality. It's something where people come and they, maybe they give you food you're like, great, cool. What else? What else are you going to give me? I need to, I need to build my house. <laughs> I need some materials. I just try and get as much out of you as you can. Um, and we just got them working really hard building. So I think there was a bit of a love-hate relationship <laughs> with that part. And then the, the people that understood, we, we were doing it right next to the, the agricultural ministry for the area. And we were doing courses with them. And to begin with, they laughed at the project. They thought it was hilarious what we were doing. And then by the end of it, by the end of, of a year, that they've, they've been begging us for more courses. They've been asking us to do more projects. It's been a fantastic transition to watch for the professional people and for the local people. It's been really nice. That's excellent. I think a lot of people underestimate it. I think, yeah, just wetlands, how amazing they are yeah. for my water. Absolutely. It's amazing. Yeah. I understand that greening the desert project was restarted. I know that you, Sam, originally saw that. I saw that two years back and was just super inspired by it. Have you mm. all learned things that have made these kinds of projects in hyper-arid regions more successful and sustainable? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think that there's so many projects to do. So to do a project in a hyper-arid region, you really have to play to the context of the situation. And there's always going to be such a variant on what is going to be asked of you as a designer. You go into a situation, like one, one example, I went into a situation in a hyper-arid region and someone wanted me to build them a garden for their luxury home. So I had this big villa, big mansion, I'd just been in a refugee camp and I got dropped into the wealthiest situation I'd ever been in my life. The contrast is hard. It's, like a, <laughs> it's a hard adaption to be going, okay, 
you're designing reed beds out of blown up buildings and then you're like making a luxury garden with fountains and waterfalls in the middle of a desert <laughs> doing all that sort of stuff but for the context i think what's um, what's really important is to take people where they are not expect someone who's a billionaire to start living like a refugee because you're like well you need to um, down downscale your energy consumption you need to be cooking with candles and you need to be like all this <laughs> sort of stuff you're taking someone where they are and for the context of of the, this job it was very much playing to the strengths of the scenario and in there there are many situations like the albeda project in saudi arabia that doesn't irrigate at all they've got 60 millimeters of rain per year which is 60 millimeters in inches 25 it's like four inches of rain in a year not less two inches two and a bit inches of rain in a whole year where i come from we'd get that in an hour maybe less <laughs> but for for that country that that's their average so they might get nothing in a year they might get 80 on a really wet year I would they might get three inches in a really wet year. Yeah. The context that they're in, they use just as much water as any wealthy nation. You know, they use a ridiculous amount of water. And I just can't see a beautiful future for them unless they really get their act together really soon, really soon. And it's, it's a difficult thing to look at because it, you think it's like very immediately you want to help people and you want to help people in poor scenarios. So you see the Greening the Desert project is an amazing project. It's tremendous. It's taking people who have been refugees for 75 years, Palestinian refugees living in, in Jordan. They've lost everything they own. They've lost all their possessions. They've lost all their houses. And it's giving a very large Palestinian family an opportunity to really focus on right livelihood and and a living doing something amazing for the planet demonstrating to the world how we can actually green deserts in a very difficult scenario it's this some of the saltiest soils on earth it's limestone rock it's very high ph very little rain resources are very difficult to get it's extremely difficult conditions and the product of greening the desert is a very visible contrast. It's been really well documented. It's really a tremendous project, really amazing. And to contrast that with working for, for someone who's better resourced in a condition that's just as hard really, but with more money, asking for all these other things, you've got to, for me, I'm looking at these future events where I actually feel like the, the people in the Greening the Desert project or in that region, are much better equipped for the future. They have skills, they have sheep, they know how to grow vegetables. If things became really hard or really bad, there would be some who would be able to survive staying a shepherd. Their lifestyle would change in that they, they perhaps would need to leave where they lived to go in search of drinking water that they could actually drink. But they would have sheep meat in the meantime, until they got there, they would actually be able to survive off the just the, the water inside sheep.
in a situation like the Gulf in in the Middle East, the Dubai's and Qatar's and Bahrain's and stuff of the world, it's I don't know what what will happen to such underskilled people so reliant on on intensive water use that um, that comes from the ocean. It's, I just don't think it's something that it's not sustainable, but it's also very disconcerting for their future. It is it has happened like this, and I think it'll be taken away like that. Yeah. Excuse me. So to, to answer your question, for hyper arid regions, there's we can do permaculture anywhere in the world. Doesn't matter how dry it is. Doesn't matter how wet it is. We can regenerate any piece of land. Or all we're doing is natural processes. So it's so natural regenerates itself, and we're just identifying the patterns of nature and speeding it up, just making it go quicker. And we're making it go quicker in a way that's beneficial to human life. So that way it's more hospitable for human life. So whether it be hyper-arid or tropical or Arctic or anywhere, we can do this. It's not a difficult thing once you understand the patterns. But the time it takes definitely varies depending on the resources that you have. If you have little water, it will take longer. If you have little heat, it will take longer. If you have a way of increasing those resources, it will be quicker. Yeah. Luca, I heard Sam mention earlier about cultivating discipline for a year. I'm just curious mm -hmm. what skills are alive for you? What skills are you cultivating right now in your life? In, and then to broaden that question to both of you, uh, what are a few skills that you wish everybody would cultivate no matter where they live? Yeah. So in permaculture, what I'm trying to cultivate right now is the building in of systems and the maintenance, because that is a big part is not just putting it in, but actually managing it and really understanding how to manage a certain site because every site is different so you really gotta fine-tune your managing to what you're doing so that's one of the main points and i'm also looking forward in these first years to get much more experience in already established systems at the end of the year i'll be going to greece to yeah learn get experience work there for a few months and really grasp a already is it five-year-old or more yeah is one of the first designs I did overseas, actually, that Luke is going to go do. Yeah. I was traveling. It was the first place I taught a full PDC by myself. I went to Greece and taught a course and installed an agroforestry system. And it's still, yeah, I think it's four years. Yeah. yeah four years old. They're, they're charging along. And Luke is going to go, yeah. go work Luke's on the system. Much lusher and like an explosion of green but now we have to <laughs> manage it so it's mm, perfect place then i'm going to the southern parts of italy more towards the tropical different climates more hotter climates to really get a broader overview of different parts of the world and uh, different ways of designing mm. and on the other side as a personal i think i'm working on really getting my life together getting my discipline together. And I think permaculture has helped me a lot also in this sense, really organizing your life for efficiency, 
because at the end of the day, if you're wasting time, you're wasting time and you can get much more of it. So really focusing on designing also your life, your daily life, your routines, I think is really important. So pushing and trying to develop those skills in these yeah, beginning stages. Yeah. I think Luca's answer was awesome. I think the skills to develop are very conventional. Like they're not for, I think that one thing that permaculture, I think more, the biggest skill for, to be a permaculture designer to develop is pattern understanding. I believe this 100%. If you can identify patterns and understand them, have relevant revelation through understanding how natural systems work in a patterned way. So you can see how water systems work all through the world by understanding the patterns of how they work. And being able to cultivate that in yourself means that you have much more than a realisation, much more than an education, much more than just remembered facts. You are able to identify and see things that make you a good designer anywhere. It, it means that you can design someone's backyard as well as you could design a whole country because you understand the patterns of water flow, you understand the patterns of soil. It's not just, a, I know a lot about this soil and I don't know how that translates. Oh, no, that, that's just a pattern. I can see that I've never seen these soils before, but I know the pattern. So it's okay. I can design for that. But insofar as being an effective designer, you could understand patterns and have no discipline and be a very ineffective designer. You could have a pattern understanding and have no, yeah, no, no work ethic, no, nothing like this. And it limits what you could do, limits what you could achieve. So I think that these personal growth and cultivation that, that's common in, in any form of thought to, to develop yourself as a human being, to be compassionate, to be hardworking, to be dedicated, to be steadfast, to be focused, all these things, they're of great importance to be an effective person in the world, whether you're a permaculture designer or not. One last thing, sorry, just because it's in my head a lot at the moment. It's also learning, I think, is something we're not taught. I, I wasn't taught growing up is how to be financially effective. Uh, I've lived a lot of my life in a low socioeconomic situation and, um, without much money. And I've actually commit, committed to periods of time living without money completely. So I, I had, I've had years of my life where I haven't earned a dollar and I haven't spent a dollar. And I'm now learning now how to be financially effective person, how to make a lot of money, spend a lot of money, these sorts of things going on the other side. And I think that this is what Bill said, what Bill Mollison said, is to we as permaculture designers, we must become bankers, we must become real estate agents. If we want to change the world, we must use the systems in place to regenerate land and the resources in money and the land is in real estate and if we don't understand how these things work how are we going to be how are we going to effectively change vast swathes of land how are we going to do that to learn the tricks of those that trade to learn those skills will make us i think very effective people let us do very effective things yeah it makes a lot of sense in a larger scale and when you're outside of cities 
a lot of the things that you can do, you have maybe more control over but in the cities, planners and things like that are the ones that are um they're greater and they're improved. Yeah. Seems yeah. like improved understanding would make things better. Yeah. 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 We had the experience of it here in Italy as well. A lot of rules, a lot of things you can't do. For example, one of the most recent things was you could you can't dig under 50 centimeters for a swale or a small canal, something like that. And I'm like, <laughs> why? <laughs> like the sense of some of these things that really, so you got to get into the mindset as well of the system that is in place. Yeah, for sure. It seems like Brad Lancaster, and I know he was working in Tucson, Arizona, and had some of the challenges that we all see in many cities and in it started working with the government and started to make the changes. But yeah, I think it's, it's a real challenge when you're in cities to start integrating these changes and to help people understand what's possible. I think that's... Yeah. There, there are tremendously creative ways to do it as well. Like you think property developers do it all the time and they're always playing the edge of what's legal and what's illegal and so far as pushing things mm -hmm. forward. You can imagine... If you're a property developer and you're trying to build high rises and you're trying to get it done in a way that's going to be profitable, you've taken massive loan from the bank that's gathering interest. You've got to pay that loan off as quick as possible so that you don't go under, you don't go bankrupt. You've got to push and you've got to push hard and you're going to make it go fast. And if you're going to do that, then you have to sometimes do things that are with the rules and not with the rules in a kind of blurry way. And that's just how development happens in developed nations. In nations with hard, hardline laws and rules that are sometimes very confusing, very illogical, you need to be able to play the game. You need to be able to do smart things. And it's the same thing with permaculture. You, something is intelligent. If you've been designing for a little while, you've put in, you've put in some systems, you've done that sort of stuff okay, this is unreasonable. What, what is actually going to be cause significant consequence? Maybe if I dig deeper and I'm not sure where the internet cables are and I smash through them, that could cause some serious problems. And if I um, know where they are and I dig a little deeper, is it actually going to be an issue? Yeah. So what are maybe some ways that I think you're, answering this question, some ways that our towns and cities could be retrofitted with permaculture designs. You're talking about more development um, projects like developers, but maybe in terms of smaller properties like urban and suburban settings. They're there in many ways. And I think for every climate, there'll be a different em emphasis on it. For the primary place where a person lives, the home is very important making something energy efficient, making something meet its own needs, those sorts of things. Like in a cold climate, you'd be wanting to leverage heat. You'd want to be leveraging the sun. So if you've got no windows to a sunward direction, you'd want to put windows in to a sunward direction and block off windows to a non-sunward direction so you're not losing heat through the back of your house through an area that doesn't have any sun. So in the Northern Hemisphere, you just want to identify the south of your building and you'll go... My street is to the north, so all my windows are to the north of my house, and I've got no windows to the south, so I get no sun 
through, through my northern windows. It just loses me heat all the time, and I don't get any heat gain from the sun. There you go. Well, that's not very good or design now, is it? So you go, okay, I'll put some windows on the southern side and I'll block off some windows on the northern side. That's just, for a cold climate, that's a no-brainer. That's just something you've got to do. For a tropical climate, it's more about wind, more about breezes. So you want to make cross-flow ventilation. You want to put windows in the right space to create breezes through your house. Make sure that you can create cross-flows and things like that. And then that helps with the humidity, making sure that there's breezes and that there's air moving through your house. Um, dry climates, often it's the heat. It's too much heat. So you're wanting to put in thick curtains and thick blinds, cover up windows if they already exist, trying to increase your insulation, trying to reduce your heat gain. Maybe you grow vines on the outside of your building so that they're covered in shade and the sun never actually hits the things that gain heat, like brick or concrete these sorts of things that you covered them in shade. Mm. It just depends on the element that you're wanting to include or exclude what you're wanting to leverage. Then meeting your food needs in a small environment, surprisingly enough, is far easier than on a large piece of land. I know it seems the other way around. If you've got land, I've got all these resources and I've got all these. But the reality is you've got a lot of work. You've got a lot of things you've got to do. And the smaller your garden the more productive you can make it because you've got more time, energy and effort to put into a smaller area. Very easy to meet your food needs on a small piece of land. Easier, I would argue. And so because really good saying in permaculture that Bill put forward is the design is theoretically unlimited. So the design you do is theoretically has no limit insofar as what it can produce. Yeah, theoretically, there's no limit to what it could produce. Like you, you think if I'm growing vegetables in a vegetable garden, why don't I grow trees as well? Those trees don't have to stay there forever. I could cut them down for firewood at some stage. I could cut them for spinning, for wood, for spoons, whatever I wanted. I could grow vines. I could have animals. I could have pond. Um, the layers at which I could grow my vegetables, if corn needs a lot of sun and melons actually need to be covered, they actually need exclusion from the sun, why can't I grow them in the same spot? Is there any law against that? No. If there was, would it be worth listening to? No. <laughs> what are the things that, that I have limited in my own head preventing me from growing an incredibly abundant amount of food in a small space? So I, I really like this design. It's something that like to do a lot in residential designs you can have this one so it's a really nice one is um your gray water that you use in your kitchen sink it's very easy to clean gray water much easier to clean gray water which is just uh, detergent soap it's waste water without poo and urine in it yeah that's the term gray water black water is is waste water with poo and urine in it so if I wanted to clean grey water as opposed to black water, it'd be far easier for me to clean grey water. And so for me to have a small reed bed with, with exotic plants like flowers and beautiful plants out my kitchen window would be beautiful and a great aesthetic boost to my, to my living conditions. Um, if I'm in a cold climate, 
could put it in a glass house. I could put it in, so I get heat gain outside my kitchen window as well. So I've increased the heat in my house in winter. I've got something very beautiful just outside my kitchen window. And in that water, you have to decide where it overflows. That water would be sufficient to give to vegetables. It would be sufficient to give to food producing plants. I wouldn't necessarily go and drink it, but I'd allow other plants to turn it into something that I could eat or drink. And so that becomes something where it's no extra effort. You turn on the tap, that tap, if it's plumbed right, takes it into a bed of flowers, and then that, that bed of flowers takes it into um, a vegetable garden or a, a wicking bed. So that could, water could flow into a wicking bed, which is gravel. It's got water down the bottom, and that water travels up just through osmosis into the soil above it and hydrates my plants. So I don't even need to water my plants at that stage. I need to water them at all. And that vegetable garden, if it was right outside my kitchen window, it could have a worm farm inside of that vegetable garden, a little place for worms to live, it's just a box open. And so outside my kitchen window, I can chuck my garden, my vegetable scraps that I've used to make dinner. And the worms can eat that and fertilize my vegetables. So I don't need to water my garden. I don't need to fertilize my garden. If I mulch it really thick, I don't need to weed it either. All I need to do is plant vegetables and harvest vegetables. What an easy thing. It's less work than going to the supermarket. Yeah. So in that, and it costs you nothing extra. It costs you nothing. There's, there's no extra water bill. There's no extra electricity bill. The heat you use inside the house is going to heat up those plants. And the heat gain from the sun is going to heat up your house. It really is a win-win. It's just about putting things in the right spot. It's all it is. You've created something that's aesthetically beautiful, makes your house much more beautiful than it was before, makes it warmer, and makes gives you delicious food that is actually good for your health, uh, isn't laced with poisons and things that are carcinogenic. They're going to affect your life long term. Yeah. yeah, that's amazing. I think that's really just the potential of permaculture, both in small scale, large scale, is quite tremendous. You come across more professionals that are all that have been in their professions for some period of time that are starting to learn about permaculture that have been able to start integrating these design principles into their existing professions. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, from every walk of life. We just, the last PDC, we're getting more and more exclusively professional people turning up to some courses being asked to teach exclusively professional people in some situations. So like for an example is the, the Graining the Desert site had a very professional group of people to turn up, like people working for the World Bank, people working for all sorts of conglomerates, government organisations. We had the head chef for the King of Saudi Arabia turn up. We had all, all sorts of manner of different people coming to this course. And the, it's just becoming more and more evident just the, the, the I guess, the calibre of society that permaculture is starting to reach, is starting to get involved in. I don't think there's any profession on earth that, that permaculture doesn't have a relevance to because it's so multifaceted. It, it concerns the whole world and it concerns every element in the world. It's about an ethical relationship to all elements of earth. So there's nothing that you can do 
on earth where permaculture doesn't have something to say about it, doesn't have some sort of relationship to it, some sort of relevance. Everyone breathes, everyone eats, everyone drinks water, everyone uses material things. Therefore, permaculture is relevant to everyone's life. So yeah, there's not a, a single professional person I've met, worked with or taught who hasn't had been impacted profoundly by permaculture once they've discovered it. That's excellent. That's great. <laughs> my, my partner is a behavioral analyst. And, I, and as I've been mentioning permaculture principles and ethics, she's been incorporating that into her, into the way that she's connecting with people on a relation, relational level. And yeah. on that note of kind of zone zero permaculture, like the space within us, I'm curious, you don't have to get into names and details if you don't want to, but I'm curious, who do you rely on? Like an inner circle, Sam, when you're facing conflicts or challenges? In other words, what's your community like? Is it virtual or in person primarily? Or do you have partners, a core group, a mentor, or family and friends that you turn to for support and advice when, you know, you're just living, you're just learning in this world? Yeah, that's a great question. I think as students, which is what we all are, I don't think anyone who practices permaculture can consider themselves not a student. We have to have good relationships to be effective designers. We have to have a community of people that we talk to. Now, there's different people that I've talked to for different things and different reasons, but my go-to person is Jeff, is Jeff Lawton. I really... I feel very honoured and very privileged to, to treat him the way I treat him, to have him as a primary teacher and person who guides me. And Nadia, his wife, she's a fantastic human being. She sorts out my all my life problems very effectively. <laughs> Jeff, I call for design help. And then Nadia, I call for professional help if I'm making a deal and I need help understanding how I make that deal, which is a big part of being a professional permaculturist is learning to be professional, learning to, to work properly, to rep, represent yourself properly, to be taken seriously, all these sorts of things, which, again, coming from like low working class background, it's not something that you've observed you need to learn those things quick. I feel very fortunate every time I'm stuck to be able to call these people and treat them treat them the way I treat them. I feel very honoured. Yeah. yeah, information sharing, it just, it sounds like such a, a wonderful resource to have such amazing people that have been working yeah, in permaculture for so long and have built those skills. I wanted to ask you, if your ideas and your experience and your wisdom were all wrapped up in seeds of potential action for you to give to others, what advice would you give to aspiring earth activists? Maybe some people are potentially going to be permaculture designers and maybe some won't. What would you say? I, I would say that a personal level, the degree of self-sacrifice is important in an altruistic way, a way that understanding that self-sacrifice doesn't always mean I'm going to live without something. Sometimes it means actually I have to sacrifice that mentality, I have to sacrifice that ideal, I have to sacrifice that way of looking at the world or that way of thinking in order to grow and adapt to become a better version of myself. 
I have to be able to be culturally sensitive. I have to be able to blend in cultures that I would otherwise be judgmental of or that I would otherwise not like. I have to be welcoming and accepting of the humans that I share this world with because I need them to help me change this world. I need the miners, I need the farmers, I need the fishermen, I need the corporates, I need all the different colours of humanity to, to work with me, not hate me, not be against me, not be in conflict with me, but to be people that I love and accept, that are my friends and who are, are willing to work with me and I'm willing to work with them. I think I learned to work very hard, learn to stay focused and learn to prioritise goals. Yeah, and accept that the path of the world is the path of the world. Well, we can't get too wrapped up in the outcomes. We can, we have, the only power we have in our life is our life. And we have this life to live. That's it. If we live this life very well, if we put our energy into it, knowing we, we were the most ethical people we could be, we were the most loving people we could be, we were the kindest, happiest individuals that we could be, um, we can die very happy. We can know that we can we contributed wonderfully to the world. If we get wrapped up, depressed, angry, upset with the world, who are we helping? What difference are we making by, by displaying such uh, difficult emotions, by being so frustrating and upsetting to the rest of humanity? What help are we giving to our cause that we believe in? What things are we doing that is actually going to shift and change the situation for anyone? If we... If we can cultivate happiness, love, kindness, good work ethic, good principles, and devotion to something bigger than ourselves, we've got it made. We're the, we're the luckiest people on earth. Yeah. I would say that's excellent. Excellent. <laughs> Before we have to wrap up, I wanted to ask you, is there maybe one resource, a book or a movie or a podcast that you would suggest to, to most people as very enlightening, maybe an inspiring about the potential of permaculture and some of the many things that you've learned? I think definitely just video of Greening the Desert. I think that's a real concrete vision of what permaculture can do, very visual representation of what it can do with some yeah where plants are not growing now we have this lush thing it's yeah that was i think is the one of the videos that got me the most and gets the people the most yeah yeah I, I, there's some amazing books in the world I, one of the questions i really wanted to answer that we never got to was about invasive species there's like lots of things about that for me were transformational, absolutely wonderful to learn about. There's a book by Fred Pierce called The New Wild. If you want to read that, completely change the way you look at plants, completely change the way you look at nature, start looking at it in a very patterned way. Now, there's lot, lot, lots of books, amazing books, but nothing beats life experience. And I think if you really wanted to learn, there are some tremendously amazing books to read in the world but nothing beats real life living. Nothing beats going and fishing in rivers. Nothing beats going and growing your own food. Nothing beats connecting to this earth and learning how this earth works.
a PDC. If you haven't done a PDC, go do a PDC. I offer PDCs in Italy. There'll be a PDC in Lake Garda, July next year. I've got PDCs in Australia, PDC in September in Jordan, uh, in, in Australia. I've got PDC in April in Jordan. So wherever you are in the world, there's no excuse. There's PDCs everywhere all the time. Go do a PDC for real. Yeah. <laughs> It'll change your life. Yeah. And so yeah, you'll get sick. If people would like to follow you, Sam, how can they find you? <laughs> yeah. Um, so for courses, you can look up on lukepermaculture.com. Yeah. yeah lukepermaculture.com. He's got a website where he's advertising our course in Italy. The Greening the Desert Project. There's all sorts of courses on the Greening the Desert Project. Go look at that. And zaytunafarm.com. All sorts of courses on zaytunafarm.com. And if you want design work, if you want to contact me directly for design work, you can get on my Instagram profile and message me directly, anything like that. I treat it professionally. If it's just a chat or something like that, I might not answer. But if it is for design work and you want a design done or you want something like this, I design anything. I design small, large, well, whatever your situation. Yeah, just get in touch at Sam Parker Davies. That's it on Instagram, at Sam Parker Davies. Or Facebook, Sam Parker Davies. You're just Sam Parker Davies, you'll find me. I don't think anyone else in the world has that name. And no one's hacked me yet, no? <laughs> <laughs> so hopefully, fairly reliably, it'll be me on the other end. Yeah. Thank you both so much for taking the time to to talk with us and share some of your many experiences and just what's possible in the world. I truly appreciate it. Thank you. Very welcome. And thank you. Thanks for your time. Thank you for thank having you me. So much. If you haven't yet visited your local green online hub, then please visit gogreenlocally.org and check out the directories for events, groups, businesses, online resources, and local support listings for your area. If you find something is missing, then let us know or just log in and add it. These are community free sharing directories.